Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with Ohio's Democratic U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown. Then we'll present about seven minutes of Columbus Mayor Andrew Genther's State of the City Address from this week, specifically talking about combating crime. In about 15 minutes, I'll talk with Columbus City Council President Shannon Harden. Then, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS10TV, Tracy Townsend has topics that include the pandemic's grip loosening and the high cost of gasoline. And in about 45 minutes, I'll talk with Brian Ross, Executive Director of Experience Columbus. The state Supreme Court has again rejected maps that create new boundaries for Ohio House and Senate districts. This was the third time that the courts rejected efforts by the Redistricting Commission, which is made up of five Republicans and two Democrats. It now means a full primary election in May is unlikely. The court has ordered the commission to draw up a new set of maps by March 28th, I had a chance this past week to talk with Ohio's Democratic U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown, who, as Ohio's Secretary of State in the 1980s and 90s, was on the Ohio Apportionment Board, which redrew the lines. I had a chance to ask him about that and a couple of other things earlier this week. Well, I think then there were, um, it was always partisan, but it was never abusive. And there were always slight advantages to the majority party, um, but there was never... I mean, this is a case where a Republican Supreme Court justice three times has said to Republicans, stop being so arrogant. Listen to what the voters voted on the ballot twice. Um, draw district lines that lean Republican, but that don't make the state a three three to one Republican state. And, and more importantly, don't take away people's rights, which this kind of gerrymandering does. And I, I've just never seen the arrogance of legislative leaders from the governor to the legislature and and what they're doing through this whole process, not caring at all what voters think, not caring at all what the courts think, not caring at all what the state looks like nationally with this kind of abuse of power. So do DeWine and LaRose and even the Democrats on this board, do they themselves actually get involved in this or are there policy wonks in the background doing it all? Well, they're responsible. It's like uh, if my office does something, my name's on the door, so I'm responsible. Voters vote for me or against me. Um, the same with people on this commission. And um, the the majority on this commission is responsible for this. And one thing they, they, they we don't talk about enough is this has cost the taxpayers of this state millions and millions of dollars. Their arrogance means millions of dollars in legal fees, millions of dollars in court costs, millions of dollars in local election board, um, local communities have to pay for because if there's a second election or even a second primary, even just this delay. All of this is costing millions of dollars, totally wasted all because of the arrogance of legislative leaders and their, you know, the people that go along in the legislature. They're responsible, too. And the governor and state government, just this arrogance from the 60 million dollar bribe to the power company, from the power company to the speaker to to this redistricting arrogance. It's just, it's pretty unsettling, and it's it's such a betrayal of Ohio voters. Total disruption of getting people to work the polls, which has become a big deal of late. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question, because it's, it's so hard during the pandemic. We, we know that poll workers generally are older. Um, they're often retirees. They were the first ones, and they were right to do this, to say, I'm not going to work at the polls now because of the pandemic. Uh, I don't know how hard it's always hard to find poll workers. I was secretary of state once you need essentially you need about 
I believe, 40,000 people at the polls, something like that. That number sticks in my mind that work, you know, two or three or four days a year. They're essentially volunteers. They're paid something like $100 for the day for, a, you know, for a 14-hour day or longer. And they, um, you know, they're just not as many stepping up now because of the pandemic. And uh, and to have to think about doing this twice is just um, just wrong. You're visiting with the Supreme Court nominee this afternoon. Yeah, I'm going to see Judge Jackson today. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, so my questions might be a little different from others. I'm going to especially ask her about um, equal treatment in the workplace, that uh, the Supreme Court has too often come down on the side of the oil companies and the drug companies uh, and, um, you know, big industry, big special interest against workers. And um, she will know, I don't know her, but she will, I'm sure, be brief that my questions will center on workers and workplace. And um, whether that's a small farmer or a small shopkeeper or a factory worker or a clerk at a at a fast food restaurant or, or a, a, a retail store or a fast food restaurant. And um, that's how I do my job. And I want to hear what she how she looks at that. And last question, uh, Ohioans, I'm thinking especially lower to middle income, younger families with kids. This inflation is just killing them. What, what do you see happening down the line? Is it going to shake out and, and calm down? Uh, the Federal Reserve is going to be aggressive about it. We all need to be uh, one of the contributors to inflation. Clearly, we've seen um, oil, oil company executives and shipping companies and meatpacking companies and drug companies raise their prices dramatically more than inflation. They they took advantage, these executives took advantage of the pandemic to increase prices dramatically. Um, that's feeding inflation. It's important um, that we call them out and when possible and necessary, um, uh, prosecute for antitrust violations when the big meatpacking companies squeeze farmers on one end and consumers on the other and pad profits for their executives. Senator, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Dave. Always. See ya. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Earlier this week, Columbus Mayor Andrew Genther delivered his annual State of the City Address. We're focusing on just seven minutes of that address in which he talked about crime in the city of Columbus. Here's Mayor Genther. Again, this runs about seven minutes. Let's talk more about neighborhood safety. Top priority is we emerge from two years of record homicide numbers, a devastating trend that coincided with the start of the pandemic. Columbus isn't alone. The surge in violence is occurring in many other mid-sized cities around the country. The FBI reported 2019 to 2020 as the largest single-year increase in the number of homicides nationwide since it began tracking these figures in the 1960s. And we know the majority of these crimes are being perpetrated by a small number of people representing less than one-half of one percent of our population. The violence is unacceptable, and it must stop, which is why we're devoting more than $660 million toward community safety in this year's operating budget, the largest investment of its kind in city history. This includes funding for three new police recruit classes this year, which will graduate 170 officers. 
I am proud to have fought for the addition of a third police class, allowing us to bring in more officers committed to change and reform, and further grow the diversity of our safety forces. We already see considerable progress in our most recent police and fire classes, which have been the most diverse in city history. This is doubly important as we overhaul the way we train police and ensure that all of our officers, both veterans and new recruits alike, receive instruction that is immersive and inclusive and emphasizes de-escalation as a valuable and legitimate safety tactic. All of this is part of a sustained effort to get more officers on the streets more quickly, an effort supported by our recent decisions to reestablish the police reserve units and facilitate transfers to Columbus from other law enforcement agencies across the state. Collectively, these measures help comprise the city's new comprehensive neighborhood safety strategy, an evolution of the plan we originally launched in November of 2017 after a spike in violence. That strategy worked, resulting in a 30% reduction in violent crime over the following two years. But then the pandemic hit, and the world as we knew it changed dramatically. Rather than rely on an old plan to address the current situation, we set out to create a new plan, keeping what worked, discarding what didn't, and exploring new innovative ideas. We're implementing our safety strategy with the help of an experienced but entirely new leadership team, including Police Chief Elaine Bryant, Public Safety Director Robert Clark, and Fire Chief Jeff Happ. Together, we're committed to reducing violent crime and keeping our neighborhoods safe. We have never backed away from doing what needs to be done to keep our city safe and we have a proven track record in bringing these plans to fruition. And while catching criminals is one aspect of our strategy to stem the violence, we're also intervening wherever possible to prevent violence from occurring in the first place. One example is the city's Right Response Unit, which we launched as a pilot program last spring to study its effectiveness and feasibility for long-term implementation. The program works by enhancing 911 dispatch units to include social workers and mental health professionals who help to triage incoming calls and address certain incidents that previously would have been handled by law enforcement. This approach applies the right response for each incident while freeing up more of our officers to address violent crime. And I'm pleased to report that the pilot program was a resounding success. Thanks to the addition of new perspectives and specialized experience, more than 60% of the calls received by these units did not require an immediate police or fire dispatch. And perhaps most important, the pilot program resulted in zero uses of force, another impressive outcome. We're expanding this program to include additional staff and hours of operation, joining the slate of strategies we've recently activated to reduce violence across our city. These include the hospital-based program known as VOICE, which stands for Violence, Outreach, Intervention, and Community Engagement. This program assists violent crime victims by building bridges of understanding and support 
that promote behavioral change. This approach has proven successful and Voice will be expanding to additional hospitals. Reroute is another program through which we're embracing supportive intervention. In this case, by using data to identify likely suspects and victims of gun violence and referring those individuals to caseworkers and interventionists. So far, we've referred more than 100 individuals with 70 currently enrolled. And we're moving ahead with a group violence intervention initiative, which is commonly referred to as GBI. This program connects with individuals who have committed or been associated with criminal activity in the past and encourage them to abandon such behavior in exchange for jobs, services, and other constructive resources. We've been working over the last several months to assemble and prepare the team who will put this promising new initiative into practice. And we believe that their efforts will yield the same positive results that have already been observed in other participating cities. Still, we cannot overlook the unmistakable scourge that is gun violence, which accounted for 91% of the homicides last year. I have declared gun violence a public health crisis and called upon our health commissioner, Dr. Mashika Roberts, to work with other city departments to make sure that we have a holistic approach for dealing with it. However, we cannot ignore the effect of governors, legislatures, and courts who have repeatedly tied our city's hands, limited our ability to determine our own destiny, and stood in our way as we seek to protect those who we are entrusted to serve. Columbus Mayor Andrew Genther from earlier this week in his State of the City address. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Earlier this week, the National League of Cities Congressional City Conference was held in Washington, D.C. Among those attending, Columbus City Council President Shannon Harden. I had a chance on Tuesday to speak with him. It is uh, really good to actually be back together with uh, local municipal municipal leaders from around the country. 19,000 represented uh, folks who have been on the front lines for the last two years fighting back a pandemic. Important conversations about uh, reform and racial justice. And now we're trying to continue to work to make sure that our cities are safer communities and that we are able to invest uh, the billions of dollars uh, that are coming our way uh, through ARPA and through the bipartisan infrastructure deal. You know, we've all gone through so much over the last two years, and you look back two to three years ago, and the situation that you're in now there at the conference, who would have ever thought? What a road, what a journey. Well, let me tell you, Dave, literally, it was March 2020 when I was sitting here at this conference in this hotel in Washington, D.C., where we first started to hear from the CDC to tell us about uh, this thing called uh, the coronavirus and the impacts that it would have on our communities. I did not know, and I don't think any of us could have imagined 
really what we were going to be flying home to as local leaders and really what was going to be needed and truthfully what was going to be asked that we would need to ask of our residents. And so uh, reconvening uh, this week is one just a, 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 a opportunity for us to take stock, but also to think about all that we have accomplished in the last two years. The fact that we were able to bring in Columbus uh, close to $200 million through uh, the American Rescue Plan dollars into our city, which has kept uh, roofs on people's houses, food on people's tables, uh, allow for families to receive uh, resources to keep their kids uh, in uh, daycare and get them back to work. So now we're talking about recovery. Now we're talking about how we can um, deal with the real impacts of violence on our communities. The amazing thing about coming to this conference and talking to, I sit on the large uh, city councils uh, group, every city, every city day around the country are dealing with the same issues. And uh, it is really important to have a place uh, where we can come, stack hands, learn from one another, but then celebrate the uh, opportunities for us to move forward together uh, as uh, local governments. We believe that local governments are where uh, you can't be a Democrat, you can't be a Republican when you need to uh, fill a pothole. Uh, or take care of folks uh, and keep them safe. These are our top priorities, uh, and we are uh, learning uh, from one another, but also having great conversations. We heard yesterday from the President of the United States, uh, who talked to us about the historic investments being made through the bipartisan infrastructure legislation that will allow us to not just talk about transportation in terms of weeks or months, but decades. Uh, and we're looking forward to what that means for Columbus as we have to build out a transit system that, that serves a growing city. We all know that we're going to add 500,000 to a million people to our community over the next uh, uh, 20 years. And it's that bipartisan infrastructure legislation that will allow us to partner with the federal government and to provide for our folks. Talking with Columbus City Council President Shannon Harden, what would you say are the top three issues or concerns for Columbus? Well, sir, Certainly, certainly, certainly a safety. Uh, I led uh, a conversation with large city council members uh, yesterday where we talked about uh, the safety, how we have to continue to invest in uh, our police, but also continue to do what we know works in terms of uh, providing alternative uh, responses so that we can free up our police officers to do a violent crime and that we can send the appropriate uh, support and help to folks dealing with mental health and, and other things. So safety, safety, safety obviously is our top priority. But above and beyond that, or uh, aside from that, we have to continue to prepare for the growth that is coming in Columbus. I say the opportunities and the challenges with our city are associated with the, the one one thing, and that is growth. And so we have to do uh, make the big investments, have the big conversations about how we prepare for that uh, onslaught of folks into our community. And so it, that it doesn't uh, change the quality of life for our residents, but also it, but, but rather enhances it. So we have to have to prepare for that growth. And I think lastly, we have to make sure that as we have intel coming into our communities and we have uh, the job development that we have coming into our communities, that we make sure that we have a skilled workforce that are ready to take the jobs of the future. It's why well, we partner with the mayor uh, and uh, the school district uh, to move the Columbus Promise, which will now allow every Columbus uh, City School graduate to go to Columbus State. Uh, and get an associate's degree for free. 
Uh, those are that is a thing that we should do just because we're good people in Columbus. But really, we are doing it also because we need to make sure that our workforce is prepared for Intel and all the other jobs that we're creating in our city, uh, and so that we can continue to move forward and continue to recover uh, and, and uh, move past this pandemic. Um, it is just again, it's nice to be back out. It's nice that we were able to remove our uh, mask mandate uh, last week in Columbus. Uh, we are taking steps to come back and come back better than we were uh, before. The cities have gotten a lot of federal funding to get through this last couple of years, and I've heard from some people that are concerned that cities or schools or states might ramp up some programs that would have to be supported by taxes in the future when this revenue is not continuing to stream in. Is that something that that council members and leaders are mindful of? Well, certainly. We've been very strategic about the investments that we've made. We like to partner with organizations that are already on the ground, that are already doing work. Uh, we have made, used our uh, uh, ARPA dollars uh, to support uh, violence intervention work that is happening in, uh, in our community, uh, to support working mothers, because again, we got to get uh, our uh, women back into the workforce, and we know that uh, quality child care is, a, is uh, a top barrier to allowing them to get back into the workforce. So we think that we've been really strategic in the types of investments we've made with our our, 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 our ARPA dollars, uh, and look forward to continue to make those dollars, understanding that those dollars will not be here forever, but we should be thinking about how we can um, leverage and support and, and uh, maximize those investments so that they won't just uh, be impactful for this year or next year, but really impactful for the next decade. And getting people back downtown and getting conventions going again, the Arnold has resumed. Uh, Columbus was just a, a hugely growing convention city before the pandemic hit. Um, yeah. Is there confidence that that kind of thing is going to return and people are going to come back downtown? Certainly, because uh, the infrastructure is there. We have, we, as you know, we're building out uh, Hilton Columbus, which uh, when it is completed later this year will be the largest hotel in the state of Ohio. Uh, in January, we're hosting the PCMA conference, which is one of the largest conference of conference planners in the country, uh, coming to Columbus for the first time ever. Later next year, we'll be hosting the U.S. Conference of Mayors and the city of Columbus. People want to come to our city. They are hearing more and more about the great food, the great people, um, the, uh, the ability to move from our airport to our downtown in less than five minutes. Um, these are all reasons why Columbus is uh, going to continue to be a strong convention city, uh, and we're going to continue to host and truthfully reap the benefits of bringing folks from around the country and around the world to our city and asking them politely uh, to leave some of their dollars back at home so that we can continue to invest in roads, bridges, and police officers and firefighters to keep our community moving forward. A lot of big cities are run by Democrats. It's the uh, the Biden administration has a lot of officials speaking at this conference. Are you getting uh, adequate input from the other side? You know, that's the amazing thing about the National League of Cities is that we are made up of uh, Democrats and Republicans. We are a bipartisan group of local elected officials. We have something that, you know, truthfully state and federal uh, legislators and, and leaders don't have, which is a responsibility. We don't have the, the luxury of leaning into ideology. When our residents call, uh, they're talking about roads, they're talking about bridges, they're talking about safety in their neighborhoods. 
uh, and they don't want an ideological pitch. They want uh, a plan, and they want uh, folks to deliver, and they don't ask our, our party affiliation. And so at this organization, National League of Cities, which I've uh, been uh, grateful to be in leadership in, it is a bipartisan organization with bipartisan thought, but really it, we are leading uh, as local officials always do uh, with doing what we what is right uh, for our residents, uh, and, uh, and, and that's just the, the way of uh, municipal leaders. That's why I love it so much. Talking with Columbus City Council President Shannon Harden, one last question here. You were born and raised a kid on the south side of Columbus. What would you yes, say sir. to kids today on the south side of Columbus? Well, I would say it to my family who is still in Southfield on the south side of Columbus is that uh, the best is yet ahead of us. Uh, as a city, we have stacked hands to make sure that you have an amazing promise for you, that if you go to school, if you do what you have to do, that this city will have your back. We are going to make investments so that you can go uh, just graduate from uh, high school. You will be able to go to college for free. Uh, you will be able to take part in the Columbus dream, where that if you work hard, you do your part, you're going to be able to not just survive in Columbus, but thrive in Columbus. This city has your back. Uh, we look forward to continue to partner to make sure that this is the safest place, um, the most equitable place, uh, the place where there is no glass ceiling from uh, any young woman, any young man, any person of color, that they can uh, thrive in our city. And that is what we should all be stacking hands for in Columbus to make sure that every child, regardless if you're on the south side, west side, north or east, uh, have uh, the promise of, of a great future in our city. Talking with Columbus City Council President Shannon Harden. Thanks so much for your time today. All right. Thank you, Dave. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. But we're entering a new phase. Moving from pandemic to endemic, the state's top health experts say we are there and they are making big changes to the way they report COVID-19 case data. We thank you so much for joining us today for Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. Ohio is changing the way COVID-19 data is reported. Case and hospitalization updates will take place weekly instead of every day. Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, who leads the Ohio Department of Health, says this is because we are moving from pandemic to endemic. As the days and weeks pass, it becomes increasingly clear that not only are we leaving the Omicron surge behind us, but we're entering a new phase of our experience with COVID-19. Case numbers and community transmission have continued to drop steadily, as have hospitalizations. Indeed, all but 10 of our counties now have low or medium community levels, according to the CDC. There are a few other things changing about state data collection. Newly reported COVID-19 deaths will be reported on Thursdays instead of Tuesdays and Fridays. Data about long-term care facilities will be available on Thursdays. K-12 schools will no longer be required to report positive COVID-19 cases to their local health departments unless the school tests a student for COVID-19 and that result is positive. All of this is coming two years after the first COVID-19 case was reported in our state. There is a drop in demand for COVID-19 testing, and that's why the mass testing site at the CAS garage through the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center shut down. During the height of the Omicron variant, employees processed nearly 1,000 tests a day. On the last day, only 35 people scheduled tests. 
We're glad that we're at this stage of the pandemic, but we've got a really good team and we worked really closely the last two years and this has been a significant portion of our lives. So it's just, you know, closing a certain chapter of our lives and we're dispersing and going to different sites. Still, there is a push to get more Ohioans vaccinated. Right now, just over 60% of all people in the state have received at least one shot. Frederick Burtley, the president and CEO of COSI, had this to say about people who are still hesitant. It's important to understand that even if you had a legitimate question two years ago, you weren't sure about adverse effects. We have billions of people who've received this without these massive numbers of adverse effects. Another sign of an endemic? Mask mandates are being lifted. The Columbus City Council voted to end the city's mandate. Some business owners, though, deciding to keep the mask on for just a little longer. Here's 10TV's Brian Somerville. So the mask mandate has now been lifted in the city of Columbus, but stores can still opt to have customers wear them. Here at Big Fun, they've really been leading the way when it comes to this pandemic, from social distancing to mask wearing to only allowing a certain amount of people in the store at one time. And whereas today, health and safety is still a major concern, I'm told it's a new day. Wear a mask, don't wear a mask, you need to wear a mask, you don't have to wear a mask. It's been a tiring two years. Yeah, it's it's, it's a real pain in the the inconsistency of it. Jason Williams owns Big Fun in Columbus. The news of Columbus City lifting its mask mandate has him hoping that it's not too soon. We're not out of the woods, out, out of the COVID woods just yet. Um, and hopefully we don't get another variant, but who knows? During the pandemic, his shop was closed for 70 days. Once open, safety, masks, distancing, limiting the number of people in the store, all necessities, he says, especially given the store's compact, small quarters. Now, he says, customers can be unmasked if they choose. Employees, though, will remain masked just in case. But high foot traffic, he says, still will not be a thing. Posts, masks, we'll probably still just do the capacity, try to keep it to 20 people tops in this place. Erring on the side of caution. But eventually, that's, I think DeWine said it best at the beginning of the pandemic, that, that life ain't going to be a light switch, it's going to be a dimmer. A figure of speech. But Williams knows that right now, yeah, yeah, that's true. Where we are, much better than where we've been. Yeah, now I, I feel like, you know, short of a worse variance, you know, hopefully life can get back to some kind of normalcy. A thought, our only hope, that everything, maybe one day soon, will be like it once was. Just outside, big fun in Columbus, Brian Somerville, 10 TV News. The governor has declined to participate in the primary debate in his race for re-election. DeWine did not give a reason for the decision. His campaign, though, sent us a statement saying Ohioans already know where he stands on issues. Well, we do keep seeing gas prices go up. Up next, we look at the reasons for the increase and what's being done in our state to try and bring us some relief. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived in Philadelphia. Local time is 3.05 p.m. and the temperature is 67 degrees. At this time, you are now free to use your cellular devices. You know that feeling when you get to turn your phone on after the plane lands? You can have that feeling every time you drive. Make sure your cell phone is stowed away whenever you are behind the wheel. 
Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. The U.S. Senate passed a bill to help the Postal Service. Many of you have told us about the issues you've been having with getting your mail late or not at all. Both Ohio senators voted to pass the Postal Service Reform Act. Senator Rob Portman. Saving the post office is the right thing to do, let's face it. The fact of the matter is the Postal Service is delivering less and less more profitable first-class mail to more and more places. That economic model just does not work. And that's a recipe for ruin if we don't adjust to this new reality and make some necessary changes. And is it hard to make changes? Of course it is. But it's the right thing to do. We've talked about it for years here. Finally, we came together, Republican and Democrat. Neither of us got exactly what we wanted. Both had to make concessions. But we were actually doing the right thing for the country here to save the post office. And I regularly hear about this from my constituents across Ohio. I'm sure you hear the same. You hear from your veterans. You hear from some of your... Uh, rural residents who depend on the post office for a lot, including their life-saving medications. Families rely on the post office to deliver their rent checks on time, to pay their utility bills, to get their social security checks. In Ohio, we've got no excuse absentee voting. It's worked really well for over a decade now. But if you're a voter in Ohio, you want to get your application in time and you want to get your ballot in in time. That all depends on the post office. Small businesses in Ohio reach their customers primarily through direct mail now. That's through the post office. So this is really important that we put the post office on a sound financial footing. Senator Sherrod Brown called the act welcome news for Ohioans and said the bipartisan reform will improve U.S. Postal Service and make it more efficient while saving taxpayers money. If signed by President Biden, the act would require the Postal Service to develop a dashboard to track service performance, guarantee six days a week delivery, and require the Postal Service to report regularly on its operations and financial condition. Well, by now, you are already feeling the pain at the pump, and President Biden says it's only going to get worse. The president addressed the American people, saying his administration would work to minimize price increases. Putin's war is already hurting American families at the gas pump. Since Putin began his military buildup on Ukrainian borders, just since then, the price of the gas at the pump in America went up 75 cents. And with this action, it's going to go up further. I'm going to do everything I can to minimize Putin's price hike here at home. In coordination with our partners, we've already announced that we're releasing 60 million barrels of oil from our joint oil reserves. Half of that, 30 billion, million, excuse me, is coming from the United States. And we're taking steps to ensure the reliable supply of global energy. We're also going to keep working with every tool at our disposal to protect American families and businesses. Let me, let me say this. To the oil and gas companies and to the finance firms that back them, we understand Putin's war against the people of Ukraine is causing prices to rise. We get that. That's self-evident. But, 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 it's no excuse to exercise excessive price increases or padding profits or any kind of effort to exploit this situation or, Amer- or American uh, consumers. Exploit them. All right, so you heard the president call it Putin's price hike, but the U.S. imports very little Russian oil. What's driving up the cost, you ask? And how high can those prices go? 10TV News reporter Kevin Landers took those questions to the experts. Competition at the pump, inflation. 
sanctions against Russia, restrictions on U.S. drilling. We are driving more. Together, experts say they're all driving up the cost of gasoline. And as the supply of gasoline around the world gets smaller, everyone pays the price. All of a sudden, uh, Germany and Europe is no longer getting oil from Russia. They've got to get their oil from somewhere. And that would that could come from Canada, could come from us, but it would be that supply would be going somewhere else and have less for the United States. Have you ever wondered what exactly goes into the price you pay at the pump? Here's a breakdown. The biggest component of retail gas prices is the cost of crude oil, which makes up about 56% of the total price. Add in another 30% for the refineries, distributors, and retailers, and 15% in federal and state taxes. Alex Bernke represents Ohio Energy and Convenience Association. We see inflationary pressures uh, with many products right now, and it is not, it's not price gouging. This is a situation where supply chain issues, demand issues are driving those prices to be where they are currently. One possible solution is for the U.S. to release more of its national strategic oil supply, but experts say that won't do much good. The total capacity is, you know, roughly about a month's worth of U.S. consumption. So it's, it's not going to really uh, be able to have a prolonged effect. Gasoline forecasts predict the average cost of a gallon of gas will peak in May at $4.25. Even as prices begin to decline after that, the average is expected to remain over $4 until November. And again, that was Kevin Landers reporting. The group that represents convenience stores says most retailers make their money when you shop inside the store. We have some ways to help you save money at the pump. You'll find them at 10tv.com. A new bill in the Ohio Senate would cut down on the price at the pump if it becomes law. It would also eliminate special registration fees for hybrid and electric vehicle owners for the next five years. Right now, you might be questioning whether the Biden administration's ban on Russian oil imports and tapping into American oil reserves will even help lower gas prices. Megan Bragg verifies the effect of the ban. During his State of the Union address, President Biden told Americans that the U.S. and 30 other countries that make up the International Energy Agency agreed to release 60 million barrels of oil from their strategic reserves. 30 million of that is coming from the United States. President Biden said these steps will help lower gas prices. So the question, will the release of 60 million barrels of reserve oil help reduce gas prices? Let's verify. Our source is Ray Trevino, Director of Operations for Pecos Country Operating. The Library of Congress and the U.S. Energy Information Administration. According to the Library of Congress, the U.S. consumes an average of 20 20.6 million barrels of oil a day. Trevino says currently the United States produces a little more than half of that. America produces on a good day between 12 and 14 million barrels of oil. So we still have to get that difference on a daily basis. That's where we're getting it from Saudi Arabia, from Russia, from the other uh, OPEC countries as well. If all 60 million barrels from the reserve were exclusively used in America and we were only reliant on that reserve, we would only have enough fuel for three days. 
The Biden administration has tapped into the reserves before. Back on November 23rd, they released 50 million barrels of oil from the Strategic Reserve. According to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, in the days following the release, the average price of gas dropped two cents. By December 6th, it only dropped another three cents. It was so quick. They did drop and then they went right back up. Trevino believes the same will happen again. He says tapping the reserves may put a small dent in gas prices, but not enough to justify using a stockpile that's meant for emergencies. We'll do nothing but put another Band-Aid on a very big wound, and we will only hinder ourselves if we ever got into a serious emergency here in America. So we can verify that, no, the release of 60 million barrels of reserve oil will not help reduce gas prices in the long term. With your Verified, I'm Megan Bragg. A major transformation is coming to Central Ohio Roads, the multi-million dollar project dedicated to keeping all drivers safe. Plus, why some state leaders are criticizing the amount of money used to bail out businesses during the pandemic. Science is not an opinion. People come before pipelines. It's not too late to act on climate. No one is above the law at Earth Justice. We hold these beliefs to be self-evident. As a national legal nonprofit fighting for your right to a healthy environment, we are 150-plus lawyers representing clients free of charge because now, more than ever, the Earth needs a good lawyer. No one fights more cases on the environment than Earth Justice. And we win because these are fights we cannot lose. We win for scientists so they can serve at the EPA. We win at the Supreme Court because clean water is for everyone. We win against fossil fuel plants so communities can breathe freely. If you believe what we believe, then help us fight the good fight and help us keep winning by going to earthjustice.org today. That's earthjustice.org. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. The pandemic put a major strain on thousands of local businesses in our state. Some of those who made it through gave credit to the American Rescue Plan. So far, the state has received $9 billion from the Paycheck Protection Program, $586 million from the Restaurant Revitalization Fund, and $383 million from the Shuttered Venues Operators Grant Program. U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown and 11th District Congresswoman Chantel Brown shared with panelists their views on the importance of small business in Ohio and the child tax credit for families. We saw, we've seen some of the fastest economic growth um, in years. Our economy now is, our economy is growing faster. Uh, last year it grew faster than China's, something I'm not sure I ever thought we'd see. Uh, the Paycheck, Paycheck Protection Program helps some 200,000 Ohio businesses keep workers on their payroll. The Shuttered Venue Operators Grant we created with our Save the Stages Act meant nearly 400 Ohio venues have received more than $350 million to get through the crisis. Um, welcoming Ohioans back to seats again. We have to do everything that we can, um, especially during these unprecedented times, to make sure that we uh, pass and expand the uh, child tax credit. So um, it is essentially in Ohio's 11th congressional district impacted over 70,000 households with an average of um, $435 a month going into their uh, pockets. And clearly that takes care of utilities or rent or put foods on the table. And so we absolutely, um, as the Brown team are doing everything we can to fight to continue to expand the child tax credit. 
Critics say there is too much spending. Among them, Republican Senator Rob Portman, who is one of 35 lawmakers, signing a letter to the president questioning where some of the COVID-19 funding has gone. They are requesting a breakdown of spending before they consider additional COVID-19 funding. Roads in the capital city are getting a major makeover. Governor Mike DeWine gave Ohioans an update. The project will focus on I-70, 71, and State Route 315 in downtown Columbus. The main goal here, improving traffic flow and safety out on the roads. Governor DeWine says the updates will go toward three of the state's top 10 crash locations, costing nearly $3 million. This is a major, major uh, project, close to $300 million project. And it is very, very important. If you just from a historical point of view, if you look at, you know, the population of Columbus, Central Ohio, uh, what it was when the interstates were built in the 50s, early 60s, um, you know, it's doubled. So it, it's no wonder with so much more traffic going through here that it's it's time. Uh, frankly, it's past time to take some real real action here. So this is going to save lives. This is going to save a lot of accidents. It's going to save a lot of heartache from people. And it's very, very, very important. The governor says the entry to the 7071 freeway averages nearly 900 crashes a year. A reminder, the I-70 eastbound ramp to State Route through 15 northbound closed permanently. This past week included Ohio Military Signing Day, and Ohio leaders celebrated some of the youngest people to commit their lives to serving in the U.S. Armed Forces. Nearly 300 high school students from all over the state gathered to receive honors at the convention center. Lieutenant Governor John Husted was part of the celebration. He also went to Twitter expressing his gratitude toward these students and their parents. And we are also grateful. Thank you so much for joining us here on Face the State today. Have a wonderful week. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV. From their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Hey, this is Grace Gostad. I'm a singer-songwriter, and like many, I've been traumatized by years of bullying. You're ugly. You're stupid. You're gay. You're worthless. Bullying causes real harm and can result in severe long-term depression, anxiety, addiction, and even self-harm. I created the Black Box Project for anyone who has ever felt different for any reason. Go to theblackboxproject.org to help you take the first step to healing. You are not alone. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Brian Ross, who is the president and CEO of Experience Columbus. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Dave. How about yourself? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us first what uh, Experience Columbus is. Experience Columbus is the community sales, marketing, and promotion arm. Uh, we are in charge and, and sort of driven with bringing visitors into our community. Uh, the uh, travel economy prior to COVID represented uh, 43 million visitors a year, 7.8 
billion dollars in visitor spend and supported over 78,000 jobs in Columbus and Franklin County. So uh, we're very uh, excited that things are starting to move in a positive direction. I remember you came in, it must have been uh, within less than a year of the pandemic beginning, you actually came into our studios and had brought with you someone from a group that represents a lot of different organizations that go to conventions and they're holding their convention in Columbus and and the city was really on a roll there right before the pandemic hit. It was. Uh, I brought in uh, John Graham, who was the uh, president CEO of ASAE, which is the American Society of Association Executives. We hosted their annual convention in 2019 and uh, honestly knocked it out of the park. Uh, All of the attendees and the organizers themselves uh, said it was the best annual annual meeting they had in uh in many many years so columbus definitely showed itself off and that was uh going to be a springboard to a lot of conventions coming here then the pandemic hit so i guess part of uh, your mission would be to try to get the momentum going on that again correct and we are still working closely with all of those events that were here during ASAE to see when they're going to be planning their meetings uh, as they work through the pandemic themselves. But we're also very fortunate that in January of 2023, we're going to be hosting PCMA. This is an organization that is in the same uh, realm of ASAE. These individuals plan many uh, business events throughout the nation and globally. So we're going to be excited to have them in Columbus in January, show off the new expansion with the uh, Hilton Hotel and uh, show them everything that Columbus can offer so that they can start bringing their events here. The pandemic hit right before the Arnold was to happen in 2020. And then 2021 was a wash in a lot of ways, too. Were those two years very similar to each other or did one top the other in in conventions and business? Uh, Well, they were not similar. Uh, We did come to a screeching halt in uh, 2020. And I think as most industries, but our our industry got hit really hard. I think I've shared with you in the past, there are a couple of things when you're the uh, travel economy that you do not want to hear. And uh, one of those is no mass gatherings. And the other is uh, making sure that uh, people, um, you know, stay at home and don't and don't travel. So those had a, a, a very negative impact. But we uh, actually started uh, moving forward a little bit in 2021. And as a lot of us figured out the appropriate uh, safe and safety and health protocols uh, to uh, make sure that whomever was in the community, whether they were residents or visitors, were safe and, and uh, making sure that uh, that was always at the front of everyone's uh, mind was how do we do things in a very safe manner. So um, and then as we got towards the end of uh, 2021, we were able to have the vaccines and mitigation opportunities for the the, the virus and, and COVID-19. So people try, started traveling. Talking with Brian Ross, president and CEO of Experience Columbus. 
And there's a, a lot of stuff that's going on downtown that is really going to be attractive for conventions. Uh, much more hotel space. There, there's some stuff happening downtown. There is. Uh, we, we do have uh, the Hilton Hotel, which will be expanding from 532 rooms to 1,000 rooms. Uh, that will be opening uh, this August. Uh, we also have a lot of development on the Scioto Peninsula. And then there's a lot of residential development happening downtown. So even though we went through a very challenging time, you can see the cranes in the air um, and people continuing to invest in the future of Columbus, which is very important not only for our residents, but as we work to bring um, visitors into the community. And of course, when you get uh, a big win like Intel, that just puts things that much more exciting. A year into this thing, people working from home kind of got comfortable in their pajama pants and, and started to really like that. And yet going into a second year of that, I'm wondering if some of the momentum is starting to turn toward people thinking, you know, I need to get more socially active in my work life and I'm ready to get back downtown and do the things that were happening before the pandemic hit. We are seeing more of that. Uh, we would like to see much more um, just for the overall you know, prosperity of the, the small businesses downtown and, and the attractions and things that uh, the residents and community have invested in. But we also understand that uh, what was before uh, COVID uh, will not be afterwards. Flexible schedules are going to be part of the future and how we work around that is um, important to all of us, but you know whether you're working two or three days downtown uh, in your office, that's a heck of a lot better than zero that we were experiencing. So we do see, again, that uh, we're optimistic that we will have more and more individuals downtown to uh, you know, bring some of that uh, vibrancy and energy back downtown. Well, leisure air travel has uh, resumed in, in much better shape than business travel, and that's something, obviously, that you're going to be dependent on. Are you confident that that will return to near pre-pandemic levels and that conventions will return that way as well? Well, the data that we're looking at, uh, yes, the, the business travel is coming back uh, much slower than a lot would have hoped. And that, again, is the fact that people aren't back in their offices or have structured schedules where people can start planning. But we are seeing uh, and, and look towards uh, probably at the uh, end of 2023, we should be back to where we were in 2019, hopefully even a, a little bit uh, further ahead of that. That. But as you know, we have a lot of things going on in our world right now, and everything is fluid. So we, we, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. We want to make sure that we're concentrating on what we can do and accomplish now. And we have a phenomenal community that is very drivable, that provides, uh, quite honestly, a culture that no other destination uh, can match. And and uh, we look forward to welcoming people in this year. 
And speaking of culture and almost, I was going to say, kind of like homegrown type attractions and, and awareness that folks can have, you've launched something called Seabus Soul. We did. We're, we're very excited to be partnering with many uh, community members uh, to launch Seabus Soul. And Seabus Soul is, is a platform that really amplifies the, the rich, historic, innovative, and forward-moving black culture in Columbus. Uh, this, as I said, is a, a collaborative um, movement forward between Experience Columbus and many uh, local leaders. As I shared with you, we are the, the promotion, marketing, and sales arm, and we always get excited when we have very talented uh, individuals and, and uh, very special cultural uh, experiences that we can share with those who don't live here and with those who do live here. So Seabus Soul does allow that uh, for us to happen. And you've broken it down into four categories, arts and entertainment, food and music, community and business, and people and history. Correct. And uh, we're, we're excited that we actually have over 185 uh, businesses that are uh, featured in that as well. Uh, but we do have uh, four different uh, breakdowns of Seabus Soul. And we also actually have uh, limited edition Seabus Soul branded merchandise, such as hoodies and crewnecks, and I'm sure T-shirts will be coming out um, that people can take advantage of. And that was all designed uh, in partnership with the Columbus Fashion Alliance here in Columbus. And this is information then that folks can go to your website to hone in on, on where these places are? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and really the, the mission, as I said, is is for Seabus uh, Soul is to create a truly diverse, equitable, inclusive, and supported uh, travel and tourism experience for residents and visitors. We have a very rich African-American heritage here, um, and we have uh, tried to be more intentional in how we can make that uh, accessible uh, to all. And uh, so we're pretty excited about that. It should be interesting because, you know, we often hear about Cleveland, especially Cleveland and Cincinnati's ethnic diversity. And Columbus just seems to be on a statewide reputation, at least for a long time, was just sort of the new big city in Ohio that maybe didn't have that kind of track record, but but really it does in a lot of ways. It does. There, there's no doubt that, particularly in our business, and I'm sure many, you know, Cleveland and Cincinnati come to mind. They're the two oldest uh, cities in the state. Uh, we are the youngest uh, uh, city when you look at, uh, obviously, incorporation. Um, but we have become a very diverse and inclusive uh, community. And a lot of that is by the uh, diversity we have from economic development, the uh, you know universities and colleges that we have here. Um, so a lot of that's been very much organically um, created. And, you know, with the LGBTQIA plus uh, community is very strong and, and we're very proud of that. As a matter of fact, I uh, can't wait for Pride uh, this year. Um, so we're, we're very fortunate. We have many experiences and through that uh, are very much a progressive and welcoming community. And being the fastest growing city in the Midwest, you know, you've got lots of people that have planted here from Chicago and Cleveland and Cincinnati and all over the Midwest. 
We do. And uh, we're even going to have more. And quite honestly, with uh, Intel and, and others that are, are looking at our community, that's going to drive uh, even more of a diverse um, community as we bring people in for those uh, economic uh, development opportunities from around the world. Talking with Brian Ross, president and CEO of Experience Columbus. Anything else you'd like to add? Any Anything uh, big coming up this summer or uh, stuff that you want to highlight? Well, we're very excited that this year we have the full slate of festivals. So anyone who has attended any of the festivals uh, in downtown Columbus, uh, we uh, cannot wait to have you back downtown and would love for you to bring all of your friends and family to, uh, to experience that. So we are looking forward to a great year of, of festivals and concerts and uh, meetings and groups and people just experiencing the many different districts we have to offer. It is special because unfortunately we haven't been able to experience that in the last couple of years so uh, we do know that there's a lot of pent-up demand for that and we hope that uh, Columbus is at the top of everyone's list. I'm hoping for it to, to really be an active summer you know it's uh, spring is always a, a time for getting excited about getting active again and I just can't think of a, a time probably in most people's lives where it's uh, more pent-up than ever that people want to get out and do stuff. Yeah, and we're looking forward to it. Brian, what's the website? ExperienceColumbus.com. Okay, great. Brian Ross again, Executive Director. Thanks so much for your time today. Good luck. Thank you, Dave. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.